0: Welcome to the Angus Conversation, an Angus Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Ryman, and today I'm here with co-host, Brett Spader. Hey, Brett.
1: Good morning. How's it going today?
0: Excellent. And co-host, Mark McCulley, we've got a bonus.
1: Two
2: co-hosts. It's going to be a fun conversation. Good morning.
0: We had a, a really good discussion where we talked a lot about how to make progress quickly and maybe some unintended consequences of that. So, Brett, this is a conversation that you have with breeders really all the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Almost a daily basis. I think we as Angus breeders always grapple with this. You know, how do we keep pushing things forward, improving the population, ultimately improving the the livelihoods of those that, that select genetics from the Angus breed and all the way down to the consumer? And how do we keep things moving forward at every step of the way? And also at the same time, discipline was a really interesting word and a theme all the way through this. And and you know it's easy to say discipline, it's harder to identify how to have discipline, and it's great to hear some really important things that these guys brought up in their own operations on ways you can physically have discipline around genetic advancement. Get a lot of the good, as well as understand that, hey, there there's always a potential downfall to any balanced approach and ways to safeguard against those things, whether you're thinking about which heifers to retain, whether you're thinking about philosophies around sire selection, and certainly when it comes to marketing time, you know, and being able to look back and know that you made really great decisions on all areas of focus and ultimately still get at what you need. I know, Mark, uh, you had shared some really great data with us here recently that was very telling of where we've been in the Angus breed, Especially in terms of sire selection and 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 generational turnover, tell us a bit about that.
2: as we closed out the fiscal year, it's always uh, interesting to go back and kind of look at. At what our breeders are using, what bulls uh, represented our top uh, our, our, our top bulls for registration and and kind of look at some of those uh, statistics and and one of those things in particular, looking at the age of bulls, I, I think that's something as we get into this discussion of making genetic progress. I know uh, a, a discussion I have with breeders all the time, as you say is is how fast should we be going and and using young or less proven kind of animals. What was interesting is, is last year in our fiscal year, about 9.9%, 10% basically of all of our registrations were uh, represented by, top 10, by the top 10 sires. Uh, I, I went back to 2000 just as a point of reference, just to see how has that changed in the last 20 years. In fact, it really hasn't changed much at all. That was 11% back in, in 2000. If I looked at bulls that uh, had sires that had 500 progeny recorded or more, Last year we had 74 sires that had 500 progeny or more, that was 64 back in 2000. So if if anything, maybe just a little more sampling or a little more diversity of sires, maybe not necessarily bloodline, but, but sires. And then when I looked at the percentage of our registrations last year that were sired by bulls that were five years of age or younger last year, that was 74.3% of our registrations back in 2000, that was 72%. So again, maybe not as uh, I was kind of surprised. I kind of expect us to to see maybe just a little bit more uh, of a shift uh, in our in our numbers, but that, that really didn't play out. But uh, it really led uh, to uh, this this whole topic. I think met, meant uh, made for another just outstanding uh, discussion, understanding philosophies. A couple guys and Ben and Darren that that have maybe a little different perspective on some of these things, and it made for what I think our listeners are really going to enjoy.
0: morning. And we have two guests with us today and I'm going to let them introduce themselves just a little bit. I guess we'll start with you, Ben. I've known Ben for for quite a number of years, but why don't you go ahead and give us the specific details, Ben.
3: Okay. Hey, um, my name is Ben Eggers and uh, I'm a past president of American Angus Association, actually, and I've been uh, uh, employed here at Seiden Genetics at Mexico, Missouri for 40 years this month. so.
1: Congratulations. Yeah.
0: the big milestone. Mm-hmm. And Darren, you would be a, a new face to me on the podcast, but looking forward to getting to know you better. So, Darren, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself?
4: Yes, I'm Darren Meyer, um, owner, operator, manager, DSU Angus, um, kind of a, I don't know, fledgling operation, so to say, compared to like Ben 40 years. But uh, we were, we had a commercial heard of beef cows for my entire life then five six years ago we got into the registered angus um, currently we sit northeast iowa and actually southeast iowa too we've got two different locations
0: excellent well glad to have you guys both both on the podcast and i appreciate you taking the time to visit with us
2: Ben, maybe Ben would you know as you think about the, your breeding philosophy? You've been breeding Angus registered Angus cattle for a long time. Maybe just give the listeners a little insight of of when you when you making mating decisions. Kind of your what is your bigger breeding philosophy at uh, at uh, at your outfit?
3: Yeah. Well, on on individual mating decisions, I actually uh, evaluate all the EPDs and what I know about the female herself uh, to try and. Correct any traits that uh, that she needs improvement on first and foremost. Um, in terms of generalities, um, we we use a mix of, of some young unproven uh, sires and, uh, and and several really high accuracy bulls, though, to keep things kind of in 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 tandem there. Um, and not, you know, I, I know years ago I heard the philosophy, well, you, you, you made the old proven cows to the hot young bulls and then the the heifers you made all the proven bulls. And I wouldn't say I, I necessarily run with that, but, uh, but I do like to keep it a, a bit of a mix. Um, really good breeder told me about 30 years ago, you uh, know, he only said, part of this thing is getting there as fast as you can. He said, just as importantly, never back up. Hmm. Yeah. So. You know, try wisdom. to try to balance risk and reward. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Darren, how about you? As as you uh, think about or would describe your your breeding philosophy of what you're, uh, which, what you're uh, getting done at your outfit?
4: Well, it's constantly evolving. Obviously, um, going back at the beginning of it, it was more of a focus on dollar B, but as dollar C came into there and kind of getting a little bit more all encompassing, it's been kind of a dollar C thing. As far as picking bulls that we're using, females we're using, we're using genomics and genomic level as a base and then going and sorting out a phenotype out of the animals that meet that baseline. Predominantly, mostly all young sires at this point, they're getting used, trying to probably hedge the risk, so to say, by not going all in on a certain bull. Limiting the amount of pregnancies you make out of another bull and then finding another one that kind of meets your criteria and using him and make a set amount of pregnancies and move on from him again. As far as the matings themselves, individuality, I usually start out with an animal's worst two traits and mate off of that. I always kind of look at things as the a cow is never as good as her best trait. She's only as good as her worst trait because that's what kind of makes her falter. So that's kind of my focus on the matings.
1: Absolutely. Well, that's interesting, certainly to all of us on this and many of our listeners. I, we pulled a quote out of your catalog, Darren. I wondered if you'd expand on this a little bit. Uh, you know, the quote read, as far as genetics, pick what you want and know what your operation needs. Have an honest conversation with yourself. And at the end of the day, accept what you want and be disciplined about it. Select for that time and time again, and you'll get it. And so I think that speaks to uh, certainly what we're on here to talk about a little bit. Maybe, Darren, expand on that a little bit. Tell Tell us a little bit more about that thought process and especially how you communicate that to potential clients and existing clients.
4: Well, as a breeder or a commercial producer, I think that message holds true for both of us. At the end of the day, you got to sit down and you really got to think of what you want as far as your individual operational works for you, whether it's a commercial guy or a seed stock guy. And at that point, if you are confident in what you identified, I guess the part of that quote about knowing what you want and keep moving forward and all that, that's kind of about this conversation is once you identify that, be disciplined and don't waver back and forth because as you waver, you, you're not pinpointed on that focus. You don't, you don't get as far down the road as you need to mm-hmm. as quickly. And if you're going to do that, once you identify that, if you keep putting those kind of genetics in successive generations, you're going to have a, a very homozygous type animal out there, whether they say you're a commercial guy or a purebred guy.
1: Yeah, and a quick follow up to that. I, I get a quick question, I guess, for you, Darren, as well. In previous calls that you and I had had, I had not realized your your very extensive commercial background on your operation, so i'd be curious to hear how those layers overlap you know how those experiences within your commercial herd and and experience have ultimately led you to take this 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 high velocity but high disciplined approach to genetic advancement
4: Well, I think it serves to an advantage just because for lack of better terms there's been some very expensive lessons learned over the years on um, the experience that I have within the dairy genetics and then also the background that I have in the beef genetics I can look at as far as a genetic platform or idea that did not work a theory for lack of better terms there too that didn't work in a breeding scheme in the dairy thing and use those philosophies or lessons that I learned there back in beef things and I can in- integrate what it takes to run a good beef cow herd. I mean, I go back when I was 19 years old, I was running 300 commercial cows. It's the only way I could get into farming was renting pastures and buying cows. And you learn in a hurry that some of those invisible cows are your most profitable cows. It's the cows that, do the thing, they're in the middle of the road and they're the ones that get pregnant and they might not have the biggest calf every year but they got one of the bigger calves and they got one of the ones that are born at the front side of the breeding season every year with no troubles. Mm -hmm. So you look at all that and kind of integrate all the places and things that I've done on all the livestock areas that I've been involved in. You put it together and you can kind of make some pretty well-disciplined decisions.
0: Mark and I are both nodding because we just did a maternal episode, our last Angus conversation, and that was literally what both Chad Deneau and uh, Joe Lowe had said something. I think the quote was, your best cows are the ones that you don't even know she's in the herd until she's six, right? Isn't that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Ben, one of the things I've... I've, i'm not calling you old at all here but you've been at this for a while right and you've been you've been breeding angus cattle for a long time you know one of the things i've always admired about you as a as truly as a breeder there's there's always been a a clear program of what you're doing how but but that takes discipline i think i think darren spoke to that as well and i think that's to me one of the really hard things and maybe because i have Something shiny disease, right? I get distracted by something new, you know, but how does how do you stay disciplined uh, with that breeding philosophy when as the marketplace changes, as you see things out there what's what's been your what's been your secret to doing that?
3: probably the the experience I can't remember that uh, that exact quote, you know, but uh, but you learn by your previous mistakes, and i've I've made enough to uh, to be over a lot of that by now, you know um the uh talking about customers and that kind of thing too and 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 some of the things there uh, uh that darren brought up or or, or, or sh- sure ring ring true with me there too uh, you know somebody asked me well what's what's lot forty worth well lot forty is worth whatever you can or it's worth a certain amount depending on what you can merchandise or progeny for mm-hmm. you know. That's what it really boils down to. And, and, and uh, I urge people to breed the kind of cattle that they like, because they can therefore merchandise them and market them better than they can, even if it's quote popular. Uh, you know, if they don't like what they're doing, they're not going to be able to market those cattle that well. Mm-hmm. So uh, everyone needs, needs to make the kind of animals that, that they're trying to do. And, you know, our main focus here, uh, Missouri's a a cow calf state, and it's a sale state. Most of these calves are gonna gonna be in a feedlot by the time they're say nine months old. They, you don't background cattle on Missouri fescue. You don't. You don't. You do it one time or twice, but <laughs> yeah. That's you one don't of those do like it much longer. You talk
0: about? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so
3: so so those calves are maybe gonna be a little bit different than they might be in some other parts of the country. You know, uh, because they're they're gonna have to hit the feedlot. Uh, uh, going and and they can't shut down too quick and uh and at the end of the day the only premiums out there are the uh really on 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 the carcass side of things other than that it's it's all efficiency and fertility of course but 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 there are premiums to be gained by uh by retaining ownership or even by just uh establishing a relationship with whoever's buying your calves and uh and uh, being able to uh, to get a little more for them that way, if you're putting the right kind of genetics in them, that will reward them in terms of feedlot efficiency, uh, less sickness, and better carcass premiums. Awesome.
1: Absolutely, you know. And so we've talked a lot about the discipline and the focus that's required in really any Angus breeding operation that's going to be successful. One of the great things about the Angus breed as well is is the rapid advancement that our breeders participate in and and, and being, being so focused on a total industry package, like Ben has mentioned, uh, even if it's specific to a certain region or a certain production system, I guess I'd be curious about the technology side of things for both of you. Darren, maybe starting with you, tell me a little bit about technology as it meshes with your breeding philosophies. What are we seeing in terms of current industry trends that, that you're capitalizing on for that generational advancement? Uh, you know, I won't even necessarily call it turnover. I guess I'd probably prefer to call it advancement. And so, so what are you doing, Darren, from that perspective, that's, that's really allowing you to get laser focused on what you want to achieve?
4: Well, to start with selection criteria, obviously we're starting with genomics and I know there's mixed reviews out there. Uh, It still is better than anything else that we have. I truly feel, not to get on a platform here, but I, I feel that genomics a little bit, the message and the science behind genomics has got lost in marketing, where everybody looks at it, to throw rocks at it, and say, oh, it wasn't right here, it wasn't right there. But at the end of the day, it's better than what we had. It's never been predicted or sold as the endpoint. It's the beginning point is what it is. And you're starting out with more knowledge, So I mean, using that technology, obviously for a starting point, as far as reproductive technologies, we use IVF, we use conventional flushing. I mean, we use both of them Uh, as far as management wise. We manage our beef herd very similar to a dairy herd, as far as reproductively. We are basically almost hundred percent embryo transfer. Those cows are getting preg checked at 30 to 35 days via ultrasound to get re-enrolled as a recip and everything else, just to, to make the most calves out of our set of uteruses that we have. And that's about all we're really doing as far as technology, just basic management and using everything that's up to date.
2: Sorted semen, the, Darren. Do you use some sex semen?
4: Uh we use a little bit not a lot. The only time that I'll use sorted semen is if I find a bullet I would really like to use and I have some heifer recips that I want to use and I will use female then just for the simple reason is like more calving ease and more predictability of not having a, a bigger bull calf out of a out of two-year-old.
1: Yeah are there any technologies you've been thinking about implementing that maybe you haven't quite gotten to but are in consideration you know DNA testing of embryos, any, anything that really crowds uh,
4: We've done some of that on the Holstein side. Uh, we actually tried it here, I'd say, probably two years ago. Don't quote me the time frame. Very mixed results. Uh, time we do the biopsy, ended up losing preg rates comparatively and everything else. And we keep pretty good records as far as what we're doing. We're transferring between Holsteins and Angus, probably 12 to 14,000 embryos a year and everything goes in an Excel spreadsheet. So we kind of know what the difference is at a uh, management wise to keep our cows on track, having calves, what we can do. That being said, I have backed off IVF a lot. The IVF thing, it's hard to hit a calving interval and keep your cows in check. <laughs> as far as calving on a certain interval.
1: Those are great points all. Ben, I'd be really curious to hear about how your operations adopted technologies and again, which ones maybe worked and which ones you haven't had quite as much success with.
3: Right. Um, Actually, I mean, similar to some extent in that we're using IVF and conventional flushing, uh, but I like to hold that to about a third of the calf crop uh, two-thirds of our calf crop will either be AI sired or, or natural service. Um, you, you know, and, and you bring up the, uh, the sex semen, uh, you know, we, we've used a little bit of it, but once again, in our environment in Missouri, uh, there there's really not a big edge to having heifers or bulls. Uh, the value's fairly equal, so, so we've not been big on uh, sex semen uh, simply because we can we can market both uh, both sexes and uh, you know uh we 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 just as soon uh, have about 50-50 bull and female crop actually it seems to to work out about right in, in terms of our sales and uh and the long term uh, uh you know program as far as the cow herd uh one of the things that I think is pretty interesting. Uh, And and this is history. It's not the future, of course. But I've been lucky to be associated with five bulls that have eclipsed a million dollars in semen sales. Wow. Of those five sars, only one of them was a product of embryo transfer. Hmm. Three of the other ones were AI sard and one was a natural sard bull. So you know it's it's not uh, with all the money we spent on embryo transfer over the year you know sometimes uh, sometimes you wonder but but you're you're still improving the herd and and uh, the females better and that's a that's a little bit of a snapshot but it's pretty interesting that, to me that uh, that those 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 bulls that did surfaced uh, for the five were were natural calves you know race on the mother. Um, hmm.
0: It kind of sounds like to me, maybe you're saying that God knows better than the Angus breeder sometimes. Uh,
3: Sometimes you got to give, give it to him yep. (laughs) 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 or it'll be fine. Uh, In terms of, in terms of genomics, I, oh, if somebody shows them to me or Darla gets real excited about a, a, a set of them or something, I might look at them, but generally I don't look at genomic scores at all. I only look at them as they're incorporated into EPDs. Uh, because that, that's just what I can relate to better in terms of, of what kind of improvement they'll make and to see, okay, how does that affect him and does that make sense for what he is? Um, and of course, there's always going to be some genetic or, or some environmental factors that might cause uh, the genetics to not be quite expressed like you think they will be when they're at weaning age, for instance, but uh, uh, still, still give you uh, an interesting Perspective. Then, as they grow on and develop, and maybe even make cows or, or breeding bulls. But uh, um, I said that that that's just the way I use them, and and, and I'm, I'm I'm used to EPDs. Um, you know, a lot of people are worried that we're getting too many. Uh, I, I'd still like to have more. You know, we need more on the on the fertility traits and. Uh, uh we've always been after that uh you know longevity is still a big factor in the in the commercial cow herds out there and uh you know we uh we don't our, our main breeding cows um we pretty much merchandise by the time they're seven but basically if um if for some reason she's not saleable at seven then I keep her and use her as a what I call a flex cow which is a registered recip. And uh we utilize a lot of those cows you know we we just sent one to town here last month it was 17 years old you know and uh sometimes you you go back and look at her record and you think well maybe I should have been flushed here instead of putting eggs in her you know but <laughs> but uh probably wouldn't really be marketable today <laughs> of course but uh still it, it's interesting and it enables us to to maybe even learn more about some of the bloodlines we have because you know they can end up uh in that flex herd uh, and the flex herd runs right with the other cow so they that they get treated just like uh our, our main herd we ai one time and then they go with the cleanup bowl and it's a total of a 60-day season uh if they're a flex cow they get an embryo and they still run with a cleanup bowl so um it, it's try to keep it structured and try to and keeping our our the, the birth dates on our weaning groups and all uh, in, in a tighter time frame that way.
2: So guys, as you, as you've implemented those technologies, and I think IVF is the one that, that, that we, you know, probably an area we focus on or this discussion we wanted to kind of focus on today a little bit is that, you know, one of the things that obviously that gives us the ability to shorten gestation or, or generation interval rather. And, 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 uh, and we know that's a, that's a key uh, element of, of, um, of making genetic progress. Um, the flip side of that, and maybe sometimes the question I hear and the, the discussion we get into is, is as we turn those generations so fast, what uh, are there unintended consequences, if you will? What are the pitfalls, I should say, maybe as we go down that road? Uh, maybe as we, we have less exposure to those 8, 10, 12-year-old cows because we're we're turning these females so fast. So I guess maybe I'd love to hear both of you guys really weigh in on this topic. As you think about shortening, uh, that, uh, that, that generation interval, what are the things we need to keep an eye on as, as Angus breeders? Ben, you want to w- weigh in first?
3: Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of what I f- alluded to, uh, early on there in, in that we do we do some of that, but I sure I, I sure don't want to wait wait in uh, too deep either with 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 that uh, quick uh, generational turnover deal. Uh, you that- know, you, you, we we don't have EPDs for for teat nutters yet. I mean, we we probably will here, but still, some things like that. I mean, just you know, I I guess I, I, when when you go to to flushing heifers that are out of heifers that are out of heifers, you know when. One of, the, one of the big downers I see in, in the last few years, as you've seen more of this really uh, quick generational turnover and all, is you open a sale catalog and you can't find a picture of a wet cow. You know, it, 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 uh, most all of them are, are dry fat donors, and, you know, and to a cowman, old school, I'll admit that. Uh, but I I, I want to see that, that cow did have an udder long enough to raise a calf and get a picture. <laughs> uh, you know, I just uh just want to see those kind of cows that are, that are actually uh, you know can raise a calf on their own too just to know that they did and and we do a little bit the same way on our bulls. I I've I've never left a bull in the bull stud forever. Uh they all they all go somewhere or come home one and breed cows natural and just to be sure that you know we don't get into any kind of a screwy deal that, uh, that ends up, uh, showing up down the road, you know, uh, got to make sure they're working real well.
2: You mentioned your one third, um, uh, managing, um, ET, kind of shooting for that one third ET two thirds AI and, and natural. Is that, is that kind of the rule you've held to, to do exactly this, to keep these females in, to see these females wet and in production and not get too heavily weighted ET? Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that that that's been part of it. You know, it's just just an ongoing thing. I mean, uh, we want to see, and we want to have enough cows out there raising their their own calves too. That you know, like I said, from the from looking at our best uh, AI bulls over the years, you know, the those cows are just as likely to do it. Uh, you know, that that they would include some of those cows that you talked about earlier. You know, that you don't find till they're till they're six years old. Uh, some of those cows end up really surfacing. And, uh, you know, one of the, and we always flush some five, six, seven year old cows each year as well uh, to, to, to be sure and keep all that kind of in balance.
2: Darren, how about from uh, your vantage point?
4: Well, I push it pretty hard. I do have some checks and balances in there. To start with, I try to select the ones that I'm using as a donor out of fairly proven bulls, for instance, when you're selecting stuff, I select genomically, obviously, but like, for instance, I'll use a bull, for example, like a rawhide or something. Now there's getting to be quite enough or quite a bit of data in on a bull like that for the yearling heifers. I try to shy away from heifers that are yearlings that are on the Very front side of their Cyrus progeny, just because I don't feel there's enough information there for stability. As far as management wise and phenotype, I work off of kind of what I know the cows are. I'm obviously working with heifers, but I'm working with heifers that were out of a good cow that had a good otter, had good teeth, had good disposition that way, and kind of keeping that in mind all the time. And also, I guess I'm being very disciplined all the time to look at stuff and say, you know, you kind of met the criteria on paper, but your mother was a bad cow or something like that, kind of a veto trait, so to say, and always keep that in mind and don't do strictly paper selection for lack of better terms. I think that helps a lot there. I think if you continue to have good cows in your pedigrees and also good bulls, and know that the bulls that you have built in your pedigree are bulls that don't throw the anomalies of bad stuff, you'll be just fine. Because I look at a cow that I'm flushing. I look at her, she's 87.5% of her nearest three sires in her pedigree. And I know that's kind of dismissing cow family a little bit, but if you have good cows as far as phenotype functionality behind them and you have three good proven bulls that within the industry are proven all well, I think you can be pretty safe selecting for younger stuff.
1: I think that's a great perspective to say that there's there's a lot of pieces that go into selecting that next generation. And in some cases, it's data. And in some cases, it's an understanding of bloodlines, genetics, and proof. I'd be really really curious to hear at a granular level how each of you selects that next generation of donors. What exactly, <clears throat> excuse me, is the priority that you look for first and foremost and then and then maybe maybe what are some of the top things that you flow to from there? Maybe start with Ben. Okay. Um you know,
3: what we, would we, we'd try to look at the total picture. I mean, we're looking at the EPD package uh uh, yeah dollar C is a, is, a, is a big driver uh, but, but the individual traits are also very important. Probably as important as anything is that is there are no big holes anywhere in our APD profile um, and, and we've uh, been looking at structure very hard uh, over the years. Um, you know I, I like I like the Cal family deal, but yeah the, the, the strong sires is also, Uh, a part of it. Um, You know, I I wonder with the the current scenario, if we're going to prove these sires as well as we have been doing. Um, You you know, we we tend to be, uh, we've went from the bull of the year club almost to a bull of the week club here recently, it seems like. And, uh, you know, keeping those bulls uh getting enough semen marketed on them to even uh have a, a really strong baseline uh, it's going to take some you know a, a lot of breeders turning in a lot of phenotypes and and that's uh that's become a little bit of a tricky situation with um you know basically a, a lot of people just depending totally on the on the genomic uh scores and to uh to create their EPD profile, um, you know, uh, and, and I think the association is going to have to come up with some kind of way to incentivize more phenotype reporting, uh, just to make sure that we do have those good proven SARS in the future. Then that uh, that you can relate to and that you can take to the bank.
1: Yeah, calls in the question of EPD accuracy a little bit and the role that that plays. Any additional thoughts around? the value of EPD accuracy in, in those situations.
3: Well, uh, I, I use that quite a bit, but, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how many breeders do anymore. Uh, but I, I pay a lot of attention to it and according to, you know, how many actual phenotypes are turned in, uh, you, you, can, you can have a bull with a uh, pretty high accuracy nowadays and still basically all genomics, you know, um, it, it uh, and I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but we probably will have some situations we always have whenever if if we get to to stringing it out too far to where we're going to have some some bad surprises somewhere along the way. So to me, incentivizing phenotypic uh, data submission is, is still an important part of going forward.
0: Yeah, now, that's been it. talked about in the board conversations. I know it was yeah. a, a big topic last time. What would what would be a good incentive, Ben? You got any ideas? <laughs> <bring> <laughs>
3: I've had too much going on this week. That was a goal to come up with the perfect idea, but I didn't. <laughs> we'll give you another week.
0: We'll give you. Yeah, we'll we'll it. circle. Okay. It's okay. Yeah. I'll catch you at Angus listen. Convention, and we can yeah. talk about it. <laughs> no, it, it's
2: definitely okay. been a topic at the at the board level for. So you know, I've been here three years, and it's been I know a topic since since I got here for sure. And I think for for all the reasons you mentioned, I think it's um you know some things we've done here just recently of even just making uh, a notation of. At the bottom of the pedigrees of which right, which, which phenotypic good. records have been turned in on those animals, just again creating more visibility and and I think uh, as people start uh, awareness, um, accuracy. I think uh, maybe a little more. Um, we were joking about it, we need to make accuracy sexy again. You know, I think it, it was our joke, but but I think to to the truth of of as we get multiple generations away from some of this phenotypic data again, folks that understand accuracy know that, uh, you know, that, that potential change of that EPD gets, gets gets kind of big. And, and, but when you, uh, you know, we don't have accuracies on our indexes, we have them on the component traits. So all of those things around just kind of creating awareness around that. um, I think just, you know, some of, as we start talking about incentives, I think the, the, you know, the you got to always be careful. You don't put too big of a carrot out there. You want to make sure that we're getting good data and folks aren't filling in boxes for the wrong reasons too. Right. And so it's, um, um, but, but I think you're spot on. I think we've got to make sure that that those breeders and, and we're fortunate. I look at our AHIR data, um, uh, this year compared to last, um, it, we're, we're basically right on par with, um, uh, with our phenotype, specifically our weights, um, way up on foot scores, way up on breeding records, way up on hair shedding scores, some of those other traits, which is really exciting and encouraging to see that our, our breeders are committed to, to, uh, to, to that phenotypic data.
0: We we didn't let Darren answer that.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I love that question. Yeah. Selection in your donor. What, what, what's the, what are the criteria that gets one to the donor pen?
4: Well, kind of mirroring and bends a little bit. I mean, it's an all encompassing thing. I go start with a genetic profile, nothing that's too far off that I don't feel is correctable. If you get a trait that gets way out of balance, I don't think that one generation I can get it to the point where I want it. After I kind of selected for what I have on paper, basically it go in the pens, find the animals keep in mind what kind of cows are out of and when we get down to an individual I look her at or look at her as a commercial animal when I'm going to make her a donor or not if I'm a commercial guy kind of look at it as a third party if I'm a commercial guy and I would be happy with cows like that they're probably a go if I get in the pen and for one reason or another say she's wild um she's got a poor foot or something like that. Kind of like I say, a third party appraisal. If I couldn't see myself being proud of that animal as a commercial animal, regardless of her numbers, I do not make her a donor. (laughs) And the end of the day, that's where all those genetics are gonna end up. And if if they're not happy with what they have, there's no use propagating it. Mm -hmm. Kind of on Ben's point there too, about accuracies and reliabilities and everything. Philosophical soapbox here. We're kind of going to get into a little bit of a a sticky point. I feel with high dollar semen limited use, I truly don't feel that even when they get an accuracy that's printed, it's going to be accurate because it's human nature. You buy a thousand dollar unit of semen, you're going to use it very, very selectively, not randomly. So I think that's going to be a little bit of a pitfall in the future moving forward where you get bulls that have females that are now selection wise aimed to be a donor and the data on those bulls sit in that pedigree are really not a random cross-section of uh, usage in the beef industry.
1: You carry some great perspectives from the Holstein business Tell us how things compare and contrast there. Well,
4: the, the philosophical reasons to do things is obviously generation interval, you speed up genetic progress and everything else. They mirror each other there, but there's some big differences in the dairy industry versus the beef industry. First of all, the dairy industry. I don't know the exact number, but I'd assume that 90 to 95% of all the dairy cows in this country are fed a TMR with a corn silage base ration. And there you get uniformity of management, uniformity of how animals respond. Obviously beef industry is not that way. I mean, you got the Southeast where it's hot and humid and you go from high plains desert to swamp grass and everything in between. <laughs> So that's a difference there because I think you take different animals will work in different areas a little different because of the management. I also feel that within the dairy industry, if you move genetics without a governor, for lack of better terms, you can change your management as you move those animals to best suit them, whereas beef industry... A lot of these cows are functioning on the same grass that grew for buffaloes 150 years ago. You're not going to change the basic feed nutritional element of what these cattle are doing. So, I mean, that's a huge contrast. The other huge contrast is the amount of data and the amount of accuracy. I feel that on the dairy side, because of the amount of data and accuracy we have, we can push hard as far as generation interval, we can push hard and be more reliant on a genomic score in itself versus you get into the angus, the accuracies aren't as high. I feel that you can kind of go off at a tangent sometime from what your true goal is unintentionally. It's kind of like a golf swing. If you can hit it really, really hard, it's not going straight. You're probably just going further away from the hole than closer to it. <laughs> and I think That's, that's, a couple of the bigger contrasts that I see
2: I love that golf analogy it's that's that was always my idea when I was young I just hit it really really hard and I learned uh, I used to golf with this uh, guy that was uh, about 75 and I always thought I could I could uh, I could whip him because he just hit it down straight and I I learned pretty quick that uh, he whipped me and it was the uh, (laughs) it wasn't all about how far we can hit it yeah
4: the other contrast, I think not on a genetic level, just as far as a marketing level, it's a totally different customer base. In the dairy industry, there is no herd bull customer. It's all geared towards four or five AIs and all the other bulls with the exception of the elite, say 1,000, 2,000 bulls within the dairy industry are all pound bulls. Whereas you look at the beef industry, these bulls that are good bulls that aren't probably one of the best thousand in the country have got a huge amount of value. And they got a different kind of value too. And I feel because the dairy AI industry is looking for straight outliers all the time where the beef industry breeding bulls, you get bulls that are hitting it right down the center. And, having the really good usable bulls that are producing the invisible cows for lack of better terms they like you say you don't even know you had her until she's six years old they have a lot of value whereas in dairy industry they have zero value
1: yeah and i know we really wanted to get into some of that conversation of okay where's where's the trade-off here in terms of of rapid generational turnover specifically as it pertains to to buyers of registered angus bulls in a commercial setting so so maybe continue to expand on that a little bit, Darren. Are there some specific traits that, that you watch yourself uh, to, to safeguard that aspect while also balancing it with an aggressive approach to genetic advancement? And, and again, what do, you, what do you hear from customers? What, what do they want? What do they like? What do they need? Not only in 2022, but maybe on in five and 10 years into the future.
4: Well... I kind of keep all of them in mind. I do not focus on any one trait in particular, but I will also let a single trait be a veto, a veto trait. I am 100% sold on the fact that a cow slash bull, whatever is only as good as his best trait. I've seen it time and time again, throughout breeding cattle for the last 30 years, Doesn't matter how good of an udder you have. If the feet and legs are bad, it doesn't matter. So many of the the great traits that an animal has will never be expressed at the demise of one of their poorer ones. It's just the way it always works out. (laughs) So like I said, that being said, I look at them all and I try to keep them all balanced. I don't necessarily try to have any of them in the highest, percentage of the breed, I try to keep them all moving towards the upper end together, is what I do. Uh, primary focus, my birth weight calving ease direct, weaning weight, acceptable carcass rates, or carcass traits are my first and foremost selection criteria, but I try not to let any of the more management ones get away. Right now, as far as maternal-wise, I'm really trying to focus more on half heifer pregnancy rate because it gets down to the fact that cows don't do any good if they're not pregnant. <laughs> it's kind of like I'm saying too, it's kind of like that veto trade. It doesn't matter how good a cow you were, if you can't get pregnant front side and stay in the front side of a breeding season.
1: And Ben, you touched on some great points earlier, but I'd be curious if, if you've got some more to add in terms of your, your breeding philosophies in terms of how you achieve that balance
3: it's just a continual process of reevaluating, you know, and, and, and that is, know, it's, it's always an issue with cattle because you don't, you know, round peg doesn't always, uh, fit in the round hole. Uh, they, the, they change, uh, or, or your perception of them does change, uh, sometimes as time goes on, but I totally agree with Darren there. The, 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 the limiting value of of any animal in in a, in a breeding program is going to be the worst trait so you've got to simultaneously uh uh try to improve everything as you go forward you know and is is there a limit to some traits i, I think we're, we're all seeing seeing some of that uh, but but in reality we don't we don't really know yet for sure uh but uh you know maybe there is a way to uh have the 180 pound yearling weight and and they'd still make good cows. Um, we, we we really don't know if we can do that or not. Uh, there was a time probably in in my life where I I, I figured uh, cows with hundred pound, pound yearling weights would be too big to function. But but in reality, if the pounds are in there in the right package, you know there there's a lot of them. You know they're just kind of average cows now and uh, and they function real well. Um, depends on the environment and what the feedstuffs are um uh, all those kinds of things but you know the bull buyers are uh they're pretty selective and and uh yeah if, if if there's one thing wrong with him uh you know he's he's got a tough sell um now there probably is at least in my area there's a lot less pure emphasis on calving ease like there used to be i think there are some people a lot of breeders have figured out that especially if they're fall calving that they need a little more birth weight in those calves to to really make them vigorous and and healthy and uh, i'm glad that's uh that seems to be improving over time um you know we we do have uh, a lot of people in missouri who do retain ownership or or uh uh some form of it at least and uh and probably going to see more of that in the future so i think that helps uh the carcass traits uh, stay stay front and center for them uh but it's still all in tandem with a bull that can move and breed cows and his daughters will function that's got to be first
0: do you think it's more or less stressful to breed cattle today than it was 10 or 20 years
3: Much more. It was all phenotype then. You know, if you liked him, great. And if you didn't, you didn't. And it was simple.
0: (laughs) But you didn't know as much about him, right? I mean, right.
3: No, you didn't know as much about him. And you had a lot more disappointments, probably. Well, I know he did. Uh, You know, there was, there were a lot more throwaways, really, for, for things like that um but uh with with all the things we can measure now and and you know and we've all heard it through the years oh you know that that epd doesn't work but guess what uh it 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 kind of does it it just there may be you may have one that doesn't fit you know that that doesn't show up like she reads so to speak but uh but in general they're gonna be they're gonna be right on the money i'll I'll be honest, on the, on the uh, footy PDs, uh, I laughed when I heard you were coming out with that. Uh, you, you know, no more of a of a base than you had. And then to use genomics and put them on every animal, there was no way that could work. Uh, I've, be, I've been pleasantly surprised how well it works, uh, you know, even on cattle that haven't been foot scored um, it, 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 it will, it will predict them pretty well. You know, there's still one out of 10 that won't line up like, like the EPD or the genomic enhanced EPD would say, but, uh, but in general, um, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty accurate, so, which, which makes me feel better about going forward, you know, with hairshed and with, with teeth and utter scores, I'm sure too, you know, if you can get enough phenotypes turned in to establish those genotypes, then, um, you know, I think the future would we'll just continue to get better on those kind of traits. I wish we could do uh wish it was easier and cheaper to do more on true feed efficiency, but then again we don't know that that fits with the with female ef- or roughage efficiency either yet. So uh, you know maybe our better deal there is to uh stick with the uh breed back on on the cow herd and and that's difficult enough (laughs) and of itself to measure so you know but uh that that'll be the kind of thing i think going forward that'll really uh really get some more attention
2: and i know ben you you sat in that boardroom for for years you you understand the kind of that dilemma that it's sometimes the chicken or the egg on some of these new new epds Mm -hmm. of do you do you put them out um when do you, when do they come out and at times uh it's been i think the philosophy has been you know when there's obviously enough data that they're 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 valid and yet knowing that as we as once you get those out and and folks start paying attention and turning in more phenotypes then obviously it's going to get more powerful and, and and more predictive and and so it's uh it's always a chicken or they but I did write down I put you in the column of more EPDs. I, I wrote that down because I'm keeping track. I keep track of who wants more and who wants less and who thinks we've got it just about right. So
0: I was thinking maybe we should sign up, Ben, to be like the next um person for marketing AGI. Like I laughed when they came out with these EPDs, but hey, they work.
2: That's
0: a that's a great marketing story, Ben. Yeah.
2: Yeah, one of the things you guys both point, uh, I, and I just want kind of wanted to put a little exclamation point on it. I think you guys both talked about, you know, from a breeding philosophy standpoint, you know, it's a, a cow or a bull is only as good as their worst trait, right? And yet, in the world of marketing, right, we flip that around and we try to find whatever they're <laughs> best at, and we and we highlight that. and And I think I think that's hard, right? That makes it to me sometimes really hard for. For for breeders and maybe some that haven't been through some some uh, some generations of making some of those mistakes and learning from those mistakes, you, you you get attracted to the marketing side a little bit and and it maybe maybe makes you veer off some of those disciplines that uh, that we probably need to have as breeders of, of of thinking this about this a little maybe a little more holistically. So I thought that was that was a lot of wisdom coming from both of you guys on that.
4: Well, you look at how things are measured and what we're all measuring, so many of them are antagonistic in themselves. Getting back to Ben's point about, well, can you believe that big of a yearling weight and can that make a good cow? You can go back retrospectively and look at where a breed went from 50 years ago and put yourself in their perspective 50 years ago, you would have never thought you could have had an Angus cow that looks like it does today. So that being said, I truly feel that if you stack your generations of animals that are similar to your target and get new genetic recombinations and everything else, eventually, yes, I firmly believe that you will be able to get cows, animals that can push those high growth EPDs along with great management traits. Are you there now? Absolutely not. and. I don't feel that any animal that's an outlier on one spectrum of an EPD can hold a reasonable outlier level of an antagonistic type EPD. It's not gonna happen. But as a breeder, going back to my statement of 50 years ago, yeah, you would have thought it was impossible then, but it's not possible now. The problem or the challenge of it is to make all the successive generations of progress you've made in the last 50 years now, And if you can do that in 25 years, look at what you did different. You can get there. I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, we are, for lack of better terms, genetically mutating these animals all the time with our matings. We're we're searching for new recombinations that weren't there in the past. That's why we're moving forward.
0: Well, I think we've probably um, taken up enough of you guys this morning, but this has been... Fantastic I think we could discuss. go on with
2: this for another couple hours. I kind of want to, but I, I, I do think we probably yeah. better shut her down. Huh?
0: That's right. Um, we've been ending with kind of a random question of the week. Before I do that, is there anything else that either of you guys want to add?
2: <laughs> ben getting Ben's looking like he just
0: yeah. <laughs> he says Miranda's random enough. and She didn't warn me about this.
3: <laughs> yeah, she doesn't need to try that hard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, today's random question of the week is if you could go back in history and use any bull from the past, um, get semen on him, which bull would you like to try or try again?
4: Well, I'm going to speak first here because I'm at a disadvantage. I don't have all the years that ben has got. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, mean, I can honestly say that I don't know if I would really have one specifically picked out at this point just because I'm not far enough down that road to have the bull that like wow either I really missed him or I really should have had a lot more of him to be honest with you that's
0: a fair point when you were talking about that 50 years ago we never thought we could have said Ben were you thinking about that 50 years ago (laughs) (laughs)
3: oh yeah
0: (laughs) but you got
3: one uh, in mind, then? <laughs> well, I, I can just tell you what I did, I guess, uh, but one of the best growthiest females, uh, heifer calves on the farm this year, is a daughter of VDAR Nutrin 315, who was born in 1988, and buried in the front yard, and this won't be on the podcast, but the two pictures up there, um, <laughs> so he does kind of come to mind, but yeah, uh, uh actually uh had a had a, a customer interested in uh what he called retrogenetics so uh we've we actually uh ivf to cow with 315 semen and uh it worked out pretty well uh you know seems to be just fine it'll be interesting to see now how she uh she'd been weaned last week and and, and I'd say she'd have been in the top four or five of our keeper efforts but I haven't actually even looked at the data yet. Uh but uh you know how she comes on how she scans you know he was a, a leader in in marbling uh, uh early on there and kind of a poster child for certified angus beef actually for a while back in the uh in the 90s there uh, mark so yeah. may even been before your time but <laughs> yeah. that's
2: awesome
0: super interesting well thank you guys for taking the time to visit with us today and um, we'd love to hear additional discussions you know if people want to want to visit with any of us they can go ahead and go to the angusconversation.com and and drop a line there but looking forward to to hearing more on everybody's philosophies around us thanks a lot
2: thanks for sharing guys thank
4: you thank you
0: that was a fun topic and yet a bittersweet podcast for us as it was brett spader's last as co-host on the show he'll be leaving angus media in the near future to pursue other ventures we wish him well and of course mark and i will continue to bring you the latest conversations in the angus breed if you like this podcast please rate it or leave us a review i hate to sound repetitive or maybe even a little bit desperate but it really is something that you can do to help others find it we here at the angus journal team would love to hear from you search for the angus journal on facebook or instagram or visit theangusconversation.com to drop us a line or subscribe And if you're in Salt Lake City later this week for the Angus Convention, please stop by the Angus Media booth and say hi. We'll get you set up with some Angus Media swag and register you for our fun giveaway. Thanks for listening.